as we looked at in our last message, uh, from the week before last, in our last message in Titus, we looked at the pressing need for godly leaders and teachers in the church. We see Titus being left in Crete with a very specific mission uh, left for him from the Apostle Paul, and that was to establish churches in every town, that, that rather that had a church, and establish elders in every one of those churches. He was to set in order what remained, finish the work that had begun, churches were planted, and now they needed godly leaders and teachers. And these elders that he lists the qualifications for are to teach and train God's people, God's word, sound doctrine, apostolic teaching that would lead them to true godliness, to teach God's people how to be biblical in their thinking and in their way of living, And to call God's people to embrace and believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And there was a really important reason that elders had to do that. There were false teachers that had crept up in the church. Those who were teaching error and leading God's people astray. Now the way elders primarily lead the church of Jesus Christ is through the ministry of teaching. And that's a twofold purpose in that. Teaching includes the conveyance of sound doctrine to the people of God, this apostolic teaching, God's word. But their ministry of teaching also involves refuting error and refuting those who would oppose the truth. That's the teaching ministry of the elders in the church. But now we're going to look at the ripple effect of that teaching, the ripple effect of sound doctrine and what effect it has upon the church of Jesus Christ. So if you're there in chapter 2 of Titus, whether it's in your digital Bible, whether you're looking on screen, or hopefully you have your paper Bible with you, let's read from God's Word. Hear the words of the living God. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men... To be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. These are the words of the Lord. Now, in contrast, in contrast to the damning indictment that Paul leveled against the false teachers, these are the ones who are troubling the church of Jesus Christ, that he calls them insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. These were... Teachers who were motivated by greed and shameful gain, love of money. Says that they're liars, they're evil, 
They had a defiled mind and contaminated conscience, professing to know God, but denying the very God they professed by their actions. He said they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In contrast to those, Paul challenges Titus to walk a very different path. Verse 1, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We know that the teaching of the, of the false teachers led the people to ungodliness. It led them to a corrupt life, a defiled life. But in contrast to those, Titus's teaching was to be consistent, according with, fitting with, sound doctrine. He was to conduct himself in a very distinct way. In a way that was consistent with the sound doctrine that he was to teach. He must stand out. He must stand apart by teaching what is true. It was one of the ways that Titus was going to be able to silence those who were teaching what is false. Remember, that's what Paul instructs him to do. Those people teaching what's false need to be told to shut up. They need to be silenced. And one of the ways he's going to do that is to oppose them by refuting their error and teaching truth. True, healthy, sound doctrine. We're reminded yet again in these pastoral letters that there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as error. There is sound doctrine and there's false doctrine. There's healthy teaching that promotes godliness and leads to life. And there is sick, unhealthy teaching that leads to damnation and death. Both of those things were present in the church. But Titus was to stand apart by teaching truth. Now, the teaching of the false teachers, of course, had a ripple effect on those who listened to them, to those who embraced their teaching, who put that teaching into practice. Paul says to Titus there that these people were upsetting the church, corrupting their hearers, causing people to listen to myths and traditions of men that caused them to turn away from the truth. Their teaching led to more and more and increasingly greater ungodliness in the life of their hearers and practitioners. But while false teaching has ripple effects, so does sound doctrine. So does sound teaching. That has ripple effects as well. right? And that's what we're after today. And the ripple effect of sound doctrine is that it leads God's people to greater godliness. Recall in Paul's greeting that he cites his apostolic aim. Here's why God called them. Here is the aim of his apostolic ministry. The first was with a view to the saving faith of God's elect, right? But the second was, right, teaching the knowledge of truth that promotes or leads to godliness. And that's what Paul is concerned with here. The promotion of godliness in Christ's church. Now, we're going to see in this passage, and as we've already read, it's not just in the church, Godliness isn't just for the church. Godliness doesn't only just have ripple effects in the church, right? It has ripple effects in one's life, in in the home, right? Marriages and families, and even outward to our vocation and its effect and impact in the outside world. Sound doctrine must work its way out, and it must be applied and lived out by the grace of God in the life of every believer, How else will God's people stand out and stand apart from the world? And what is false? It isn't just a profession of our lips. 
It isn't just the things that we say or claim to believe, right? Our lives have to be consistent with those things. We have to be people who practice what we preach. We have to be a people whose behavior is consistent with the things that we say we believe, right? Our creed and our conduct are in alignment. Our doctrine and our duty match up. We know the charge leveled by the world against believers. All those people, they talk a good talk, but man, their lives aren't consistent with that. They're hypocrites. Now, everybody's a hypocrite. People in the world are especially hypocrites. But that's the charge leveled against believers. But what happens when they encounter a believer that actually is living out the very things they claim to believe and profess? They take notice of that, don't they? Now, they may not like the truth. They may not even like the practitioner of the truth, but they cannot deny that there is a consistency between the talk and the walk. And that is our aim. That's the ripple effect of sound doctrine when one wrestles with its implications and applies it to their life, and it now leads to a life of godliness. Right? The world will take notice of such things. When we look at Paul's exhortation here to Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, we're going to see two interlaced components, inseparable components to what Titus is to teach. The first is the sound doctrine itself. It's the truth. It is the sound doctrine. It is the whole body of apostolic teaching. It is all the divine revelation of the word of God. Titus is to teach that doctrine. That is the only healthy doctrine that grows God's people and grows the church of Jesus Christ in godliness. And the second component is that which accords with sound doctrine. What is that? Well, that is all of the ethical demands, all of the practical duties that arise from the teaching of that sound doctrine. You can't separate Christian doctrine from Christian duty. All theology is practical. All theology has to be put into practice in your life. It has implications for you. It places demands upon you as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it has to be worked out in your life. Think about our preaching of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Does that not have implications for the life of the believer? It's not just something that you know in your head. It's not just something you confess with your mouth. Practically, that works out in your life. Especially when everything goes wrong. Especially when a tragedy hits our life. Especially when conflict arises. Especially when we look at the things going on in our world. It has implications for how you live out your life. Whether you live it in faith or whether you live it in fear. Whether you're trusting in yourself or whether you're trusting in God. Whether you stand up in faith knowing and trusting that our God is in sovereign control of His creation, or you shrink back in terror and cower in fear. It's imminently practical implications and applications for your life. As you sit under the ministry of God's Word today, you're not just coming to get information. You're not just coming to get your head filled with facts and details about the Word of God. Yes, it's important to have knowledge of God's Word. Of course it is. But that's not all. You have a responsibility before God today to respond to His Word. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the Word of God? You have a responsibility 
to wrestle with the practical implications and application of God's word to your own life. When you gather like you are today with the saints and sit under the ministry of God's word, have you come with a desire to hear the teaching, to have it applied to your life, and a desire to go home and wrestle with it and and pray through it? God, what implications does that have for my life? How do I apply it personally to my own life to walk this out to grow in godliness? That's your responsibility before God. That is how you're to respond to this. There's no inconsequential thing happening in this very moment. God's word is meant to transform you and grow you in godliness. Do you believe that? Yes? If so, what are you going to do with it? But it's not just practical and personal application that's in view in this passage. Because it's readily apparent as we just read it, and as God's people grow in godliness, as they're being transformed by the grace of God, there is a ripple effect that extends outward from the individual to other areas. There is an amplification outward that impacts the whole body of believers. The church is impacted by the personal growth and application of God's word in the life of every believer. Which means that your personal growth in godliness is not a private matter. We like to talk about our personal faith and our individual faith, but it doesn't stay there, does it? It's not supposed to. Right? All of God's people are to be examples to one another in godly conduct. All of God's people are to have a sense of responsibility for others in the church community. All are to take care that the word of God is not reviled. That all of our lives are lived in a way that adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This goes back to the question Cain posits to the Lord when he calls him. Who am I? Am I my brother's keeper? You know what the answer to that is? Yes, you are. You have a responsibility to that brother and sister sitting next to you. You can't avoid that and you can't escape that. Your faith isn't private. And it certainly isn't to be private as it's lived out in the home and in the world. Look at even, we can see this in the exhortations that Paul instructs Titus to teach the different categories here. right? The exhortation that older women are to teach what is good and train the younger, that Titus himself is to be a model of good works, that a bondservant's godly conduct adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. You can see it isn't just about them. It has a ripple effect outward to others in the church and even others outside of the community of faith. Paul was concerned that all believers would have this sense of responsibility and motivation to promote godly conduct that is consistent With the sound doctrine that is being taught in the church. Here, the local church, God intends that the lives of every single one of you would influence others here. And that influence through your godly example is to testify of the truth, power, and hope of the gospel of God. This is the essence of discipleship. Our examples influencing the believers in the body. It is critical. It's important. You have a responsibility, brother and sister. Every single 
one of you without exception, but through your life and conduct to empower the gospel's influence on others here and outside of here as well. That's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. Now, here's what Paul does in this moment. He gives Timothy that exhortation that he's to teach what accords with sound doctrine, those two elements, the sound doctrine itself and that which is consistent with that sound doctrine, the ethical demands and the practical uh, applications of of that word in our Christian duty. And he is going to now take that, that principle of personal application and bring it to bear on these six different categories that we see in our passage today. And he categorizes them in interesting ways, by age, by sex, and by occupation. Older men, younger men, right? We have age, we have sex, right? Older women, younger women. Now, I'm not going to say what old is or what young is there. (laughs) I will get into a lot of trouble if I do that. We can think about maturity there. Uh, Those who are a little more seasoned in life, right? Uh, But he also then brings it to bear upon Titus himself and his role as an elder, as, a, as the one teaching the sound doctrine. And then he applies it to bond servants, slaves, which I will apply to all those who are in the employ of others. But all of these, the different ages, different sex, different roles, face different challenges and temptations, don't they? Men have different things they struggle with in temptation than women do. And you certainly by age as well. And I love that we can't, don't have time to get into this, but isn't it amazing here how God's Word sets apart the distinction in gender here that our world seems to be tripping all over itself in. It's important. It makes a difference, okay? Uh, so Paul is bringing God's Word to bear the ethical demands, right, and, and that of duty upon these different categories of groups here. So we're going to look at them uh, ever so briefly, but... Consider how in these few short verses here, Paul lists a number of issues that Titus must address in the church. The positive things and the negative things kind of bring this picture to us of things going on in the church. So Titus has got to address these issues. Immorality, anger, lack of reverence and respect, immaturity, slander, drunkenness, idleness, crude behavior dishonesty, disobedience, theft. What on earth was going on in the church there? Is this the Corinthian church we're looking at? Well, yet there were issues in that church that had to be addressed. But those things aren't any different than the modern issues that we have to address today in the church of Jesus Christ. Anywhere you have sinners, you're going to find these issues that have to be addressed. Now, as we unpack these, these things here, take note that what Paul instructs here are some of the godly conduct and qualities that characterize the mature believer. The person growing in godliness exhibits this kind of character and conduct. So as you're looking at that, I mean, it's, it's bringing it clear to us, sound doctrine is placing these ethical demands of character and conduct and behavior upon each believer. There is something that needs to happen in your life as that sound doctrine is worked out and wrestled with and applied to your life. This is not anything therapeutic. This is the work of grace in your life 
as you seek to please the Lord and live lives of godliness and holiness before Him and, and work the Word out in your life, God is at work in you, changing you, transforming you, aligning your affections with His, giving you an increasing desire for holiness, but, but also to be an example to the believers in life and conduct. So let's look at this first group, the old dudes, the older men, the gray beards, the gray hairs, right? This is interesting that, you know, he's letting them know, Titus, you have a responsibility to teach the older men of the church. I don't know how old Titus was. We really don't know. He would probably have been considered a younger man, okay? Kind of like Timothy, right? Uh, and at that time, a younger man would have probably been 35 and under, okay? We think of a young man sometimes in their early 20s, but uh, in this culture, it would have been older. The elders, right, which, which older men here, the word used in the Greek here is the same root word as the one used for the title of the office of elders that we've been teaching here, right? Speaking of seniority, right? Those who are more mature in years, those who would have been seen as the natural leaders in the community, right? In the community at that time, especially when we think about the Jewish communities, those who were older, uh, were the ones that people looked to to lead the community of, uh, of the followers of Yahweh. Uh, but, but these older men here, those who are more mature or senior, get two general exhortations here. The first is that they're to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Character, behavioral qualities here. And then these virtues. They're also to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men should demonstrate a temperament, a lifestyle, a behavior that is appropriate to their seniority. Meaning they should not be acting like younger men. They should be acting in accordance with the maturity that they have in years. Meaning they should be level-headed. They shouldn't be losing their cool. They should not easily be angered. They should not easily be baited into arguments. They should be self-controlled. Right? When we see self-control here, it isn't just about being, having a disciplined life, though that is part of it, but it means to not be ruled by your impulses and desires. Older men should not be ruled by their impulses and desires. Their life should be under control. They should have self-mastery in the areas of their tongue, their speech. They shouldn't be careless or foolish with their words, and certainly not careless or foolish in their behavior. Now, this self-control life, we're going to see this in all of these categories, right? It's not just older men that are to be self-controlled. Younger women are to be self-controlled, and they're to get that example from the older women and younger men are told to be self-controlled, and they're to get that example from Titus, who is an elder, and one of the qualifications is that they be self-controlled. You get the key idea and theme as it comes to this, the self-controlled life here, not being ruled by our impulses or desires, right? It's a mark of maturity that comes from walking with God, a consistent walk with God, usually over many years. That's the key quality we see repeated. And we'll see next week in verse 12 that the grace of God also trains us to live self-controlled lives. It's a big deal. A Christian whose life is not self-controlled, um, 
calls a lot of things into question. These older men should act and live in a respectable manner. He says they should be dignified. Now that word is really rich. They're to act with a sensibility, a seriousness in their uh, demeanor that engenders honor naturally from others. Now when people look at this life, they see someone who should be honored. And in the context of this passage, it should especially come naturally from younger men watching the example of these mature, godly, older men. What does this tell us about the unique temptations of older men? Possibly indicating that older men face the temptations to be grumpy in their older age. You any grumpy old men? Don't look around. I mean, that's going to be too obvious. Right? Older men tend to argue about a lot of things. Be cynical about things. Be the most resistant sometimes to change and innovation. Uh, Naysayers when something new is presented. I mean, as I was studying this, there was a particular deacon back in my old life that came to mind. He did not typify the older man here, but he was in a position of leadership. And man, he was the grumpiest, nastiest, mean, challenged everything all the time, you know. And um, those are unique temptations to, to older men who have experience, who've walked through things in life and now... We're going to see this kind of with the older women as well. You can get jaded. You can get cynical about things and life. And you tend to judge those who are younger than you. Right? But these temptations have to be resisted. They have to be resisted. They're unhealthy for the older man's personal faith. And they certainly are unhealthy for the life of the church. We don't need grumpy old men. We need godly men. Seasoned men, mature men, spiritual men, dignified men, sober-minded, self-controlled men in the church. And these older men should be exuding these virtues of faith, love, and steadfastness. These virtues that flow out of a life of godliness that enable the kind of godly behavior that is expected of older men. They make a difference, don't they? Sound and love. A love that's, that's it's, it's, it's marked by the love of God and, and a love for others. Especially love for the, the, the fellow believers. There to be sound in faith, this deep confidence and trust in the Lord. Wouldn't you love it when you encounter an older man who's just sound in faith? Theirs is a life of faith. One that's worthy to be emulated. That's what's in view here, right? They're immersed in the word of God. They trust Jesus. Their life reflects that. They're to be sound in steadfastness, right? That's about patience and endurance, right? The older men are to be an example of what it means to run the race with endurance, right? They don't throw in the towel. They they don't bail when things get tough. They've walked a long enough life of, of faith And and endurance that others can look at that and go, wow, look how they came through adversity. Look how they overcame that trial. Look how they walked through that that difficult moment in their life. And their faith was strengthened and strong, right? It's worthy to be uh, emulated here. The call is for older men to live in such a way that the younger men can look up to them and look at their lives and say, I want to be. Like, I want my faith to be like theirs. 
You don't want younger men to say, I don't want to be like them when I grow up. I don't want to look like them. I don't want to act like them. I don't want to behave like them. So I ask you older men here, and I'll let you judge for yourself if you're the older man. Are you the kind of godly man that younger men would want to emulate? Could they emulate your character, your conduct, your love, your faith, your steadfastness, and say, that's the picture of godliness that I want to follow? He says in verse 3, older women likewise. Right. So once again, we see, all right, there might be some similar things in view here in the older women that they share with the younger men. Similar temptations, even though there are others. That temptation, again, to be jaded and cynical and judgmental, right? Looking down on others and thinking they don't do things the way we would do them, right? They don't serve in the church like I serve in the church. Or how maybe some older mothers might tend to judge the younger mothers and say, I, that's not how I would raise my kid. I know no one here has done that or thinks that way. But some do. But if one is not careful in older ages, you can easily slip into a life of grumbling and complaining and criticizing. And sadly, that happens a lot. We see it in the church. Think about people you know that are older, maybe not here, but family members, people in your workplace that are older. Who does most of the complaining and criticizing? Sometimes it's, it's the older ones. So, the instruction here is then the exhortation that they're to be reverent in behavior. Now, it's interesting, this word reverent here uh, in the Greek is only used in this passage. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. The word reverent is used elsewhere, but this particular word is only used here, uh, and, it, and it carries with it the sense of um, that reverence that a priestess would have in how they serve the deity that they worship and serve, right? So we could say that what he's saying is here to the older women, in the way that you live, be like a priestess who performs religious duties to a deity. The sense is that a godly older woman in their daily life should carry the demeanor of one who allows this sense and awareness of the presence of God to permeate their whole lives. The whole of their life is lived in devotion to God reverent in their behavior, devoted to God that produces this godly behavior, this life of holiness is what's in view here. And they're to avoid two moral failures here. They should not be slanderers and they shouldn't be sipping too much wine. All right? It's interesting, isn't it? Not slanderers. They're not to use their mouths to tear others down. They're not to use their mouths to criticize and complain and backbite. And they have to be self-controlled. That's in view here. When he says, don't be too addicted to too much wine, you've got to be self-controlled there. You can't lose control through self-medication by imbibing too much of the fruit of the vine. Self-control, again, is in view here. Why? Well, here, here it is again. Here's the ripple effect of godliness in the life of an individual working its way outward. They, by their example, are going to teach the younger women in the church. Teach, he tells them, what is good. The older women are to teach what is good. 
by their lifestyle, they are teaching the younger women the acceptable patterns of behavior that they are to emulate. Now, for sure, there is intentional, dedicated instruction in view here, but he's talking about their life first and foremost. The very things he's going to instruct that the younger women should be living in lives of godliness and in their conduct that's to be consistent with sound doctrine, they have to see in the older women. It's critical. These older women should desire to live godly lives, not just to please the Lord, which they should, but they should be motivated also to encourage the younger women who are watching them. Older women, the younger women are watching you. They're looking at you. They're looking at your life. They're looking at your faith. They're looking at how you behave, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your children, how you've raised your children. They're watching you. And that should be good. Older women should desire for younger women to say, hey, like Paul says frequently, right? Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. As Titus is supposed to also do to be a model of good works, right? Older women should be able to tell the younger women, you can, you can watch my life and do what I do and speak like I speak and, and raise your children like I raise my children and, and how I treat and respect and am submissive to my husband. You can emulate that. The challenge for the older ladies is, again, you teach good things by your lifestyle. But the flip side of that is you also could be teaching bad things. So what kind of example are you modeling for the younger women? What are they seeing in you that they should want to emulate as a godly woman? The beautiful thing we see in these exhortations to the older, older men and to the older women is that no one in the church outlives their usefulness. In the world, old people are discarded, set aside. They really don't have any much more value. Let's put them in a home. Let's tuck them away. They're inconveniencing us. That's not the church of Jesus Christ. There is great value that older men and older women bring to the church of Jesus Christ. With age and experience come wisdom. Or it should happen, right? Sadly, we know there are older folks who are foolish. They didn't learn the lessons of life and they didn't apply the wisdom from God's word. But generally speaking, right, with age and experience comes wisdom. And that wisdom needs to be transmitted to the younger men and younger women of the church. The older ladies have much to offer the church, much to offer the young ladies in our church. And I pray you embrace that responsibility and take it seriously, and not just in life and conduct, but, but in your interactions with the younger women of this church to to help them, right? To give them instruction that could save younger women a lot of grief in their life and heartache. Like, so who, who better to guide a young woman than a godly older woman? What's interesting here is, notice, he doesn't tell Titus to teach the younger women. That's not his job. It's the responsibility of the older women to teach. There's ethical considerations there that I don't need to get into here. But the primary responsibility here is given to the older women to do that, to teach the younger women. What we need are more Titus II women in the church. 
who embrace this will live it out and take younger women under their wing to help guide them in the faith and in the practical implications and application of the sound doctrine in all areas of their life. So older saints, the younger saints need you. Amen? Now, let's talk about the younger women. And this is a long portion here. It's because the women, the younger women, need a lot of exhortations. Right? Amen? <laughs> You're scared, huh? Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this here, but it's going to be interesting. All right, so the exhortation he gives the younger women here are the things, again, that the godly older women, by their lifestyle, should be encouraging the younger women to do. Now, I want you to keep in mind as we go through this portion, the context, the ancient Greco-Roman context of that time, okay? We read these passages and we're thinking of our modern context today, younger women today, younger women in the world today, uh, and we read this and this is why many go, well, this is antiquated stuff that's not for the young women today, because young women today also work outside the home. Young women today have careers and professions and are pursuing uh, education, right? Paul would not have envisioned the world of today when he wrote this letter. None of the apostolic uh, writers were looking at going, well, I can see in the future things are going to be a little bit different, technology and social media. And nope, that's, that's not in view here, right? He's writing to a particular people at a particular uh, time. So keep that in mind. Paul is not opposing in this passage women pursuing a profession, pursuing a career outside of the home, or for women to be to receive higher education. All right, so put that away from your mind. There are principles here uh, that are being driven home that are implications and application of sound doctrine that younger women need to heed in order to grow in godliness. But he's not opposing that. Look who he's addressing here as younger women. The assumption is here that they're married and have children, okay? So we know that's not all younger women, but this particular category, he's not only talking about age and gender, but a particular station in life. They are also married, and they're also mothers, okay? Uh, so if a woman is married and a woman has children, these very things apply here. They must love their husband and their children, and they must not neglect them. That's the point here. Home is to be the priority. It's where they're called to serve. Now, we know this, right? We, we've talked about it. If, if a woman is married and has a family, but she makes her career the priority or makes financial gain and advantage the priority, then she's in violation of Scripture, isn't she? Yes? Home is the priority. The marriage is the priority. The children are the priority, not the career, not the profession. We're going to talk about that here again in a moment. The priority is the welfare of her marriage, first and foremost. Then her priority is her children and all of the, the duties, the domestic duties of the home as well. All right? Um, he says here they should be working at home. Now, that word is actually homeworkers is how it could be translated. What does it mean to be a home worker here? Is he talking just about a stay-at-home mom? Not necessarily. What's in view here is productivity, that she must not be idle when it comes to the things of the home. She must be productive, right? Yes? I just, I, I can feel the tension. It's so funny. 
You know, where's he going here? <laughs> so it's about productivity. The woman must not be idle. If she's married and has kids, she's home, she's got to take care of that, right? And must not neglect it. But it's not just about idleness or laziness in the home that's in view here. That's a temptation that some younger women have. If they're, especially if they don't work outside of the home, then it's like, well, i got a lot of free time, and, well, they can get into some trouble there. It also is a call to resist the temptation to be over-busy elsewhere. To look for something beyond the home. To think that things would be better if only I was doing this or that or had this or that. Now, we live, sadly, in a culture that devalues marriage and devalues having children, devalues the family. Our culture has lied to women that they have no real value if they don't have a career, if they don't have a profession, if they don't have their own thing that they could call themselves outside of the home, that the lowest station in life is to be a stay-at-home mom. Like, there's no identity in that. This is the lie. These are demonic lies that sadly have infested the mindset of many women. Some of you might be here today and have bought into that lie yourself. But there's something critical here that you have to grasp, especially if you're in Christ. Our value, our identity, our worth does not come from what we do. It doesn't come from our career. It doesn't come from our education. It doesn't come from any skill level or talent we might have or profession that we pursue. Our identity is rooted in Christ, isn't it? We are Christ's. We are His treasured possession. We are the redeemed of the Lord. All of our value and worth and identity is wrapped up in that. Not in what I do. So a woman whose vocation is the home has as great, if not greater, value than anything else they can do out there. You're not a nobody if you're a stay-at-home mom. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't, don't believe it. And to you men who might be thinking, no, my wife needs to work outside of the home because X, Y, Z, I want you to really consider that. Especially if you have little ones. Especially in the day and age that we're living in today. This is not a thus saith the Lord. But you need to wrestle with this doctrine, the sound doctrine, and its implications and applications personally in your life. And for you younger women, know that. That there's a call here that's just as great, if not greater than those things. And it's a lie, man. Social media, right? You know, every young lady nowadays wants to be a social media influencer. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Because they look at that, well, that looks like an easy way. I don't have to go do this or that and, and, and get acclaim and worth and value from likes and little hearts and little posts of admiration. No, our identity is in Christ Jesus. And if we are married and if we're in their home, that's our priority. That's our main responsibility, right? The gospel liberates us as Christ redeemed as Christ redeemed people to see that everything we do is for the glory of God. Even the mundane, wearying tasks of taking care of a home, of raising 
children, of taking care of your husband is infused with great value and purpose. Paul's calling the younger women to live godly lives just as he's called the older men and the older women. Tells them here they're also to be self-controlled. You see, that applies to everyone. They're to possess a certain self-mastery as well. Pursue holiness, demonstrate compassionate kindness to their husband and children, and be productive in the home. Now, that word kind is about compassion, right? And it's, you know, uh, that tender compassion that she should be showing to her husband and her children. But it's, it's linked to that, that phrase, working at home. So, and, and, the, and the Greek word means useful or beneficial. So it's a useful working at home. Again, it's, it's all emphasizing the productivity that should be taking place. And then, this lovely exhortation. They should be submissive to their own husbands. Amen. Now, a lot of the men said amen, and only a couple of the women said amen, but they should be submissive to their own husbands. This is, this is one of five New Testament passages that uses similar languages here. This is an important theme in Scripture that we should not gloss over so quickly, uh, especially, again, considering what we're talking about here, godliness, the ripple effect of sound doctrine that produces godliness in our lives. And this is one of those uh, character qualities, attributes, virtues that flows out of that for younger women, but should be reflected in the older women, right, that are married. God has ordained that the husband is the head of the wife and that wives should submit to their own husband's loving leadership in that relationship. That's by God's design. That's not man's design. It's abused. There's a lot of little tyrants in the home. There's a lot of selfish morons in the home. Brutes. And Scripture doesn't give license for any of those things, all right? Ephesians 5.25, we know, says that a husband is to love their wife, their own wife, as what? As Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. The sacrificial love of husbands is to be complemented by the love of wives who are to submit in everything to their husbands. That's what God has designed. That's what works in a godly Christian marriage. Now, for a wife to submit does not mean that she suppresses all of her gifts and talents and intelligence, okay? It's not a suppression of those things. It's a full expression of those things. She fully expresses her intelligence, gifts, and talents in the purpose of supporting her husband in the spiritual leadership of the home. That's how it's supposed to work. That is what glorifies God and presents to everyone else this picture of Christ's sacrificial love and leadership of the church and the church's loving submission to Christ in everything. That's the picture that our marriages are supposed to portray in the world. A godly Christian wife uses her gifts and talents for the higher purpose of supporting the nurturing of the household, the physical duties and the spiritual duties in the home. And it's reflected in her willing, loving submission to her husband in everything. It's a beautiful picture. It's the ethical demand that sound doctrine places on the wife, on the woman in the home. Why should younger women comply with the ethical demands of sound doctrine? This is interesting how he says it here. Again, it's the ripple effect of their behavior. 
It's going to have ripple effects for sure in their home, especially in a home maybe the spouse is not a Christian, not a believer. What kind of example is she setting then for her husband? But it goes and extends beyond that, also to her children, right? The ripple effect. That the Word of God may not what? Be reviled. The Word of God may not be dishonored. Christian marriages and Christians' home who follow the Lord, who promote godliness, comply with the teaching of sound doctrine, beautifully commend the gospel. I love that. My exhortation to young couples, especially if I'm doing premarital counseling, I talk about this in the ceremony that I perform, always comes back to Ephesians chapter 5 and the picture of what marriage is supposed to be, what it portrays to the church and to the world. So one that is following these things, living these things out, commends the Word of God. It, it, It doesn't bring disrepute and dishonor to it. And how many of us, because of the ungodliness we exhibit in our home, cause the Word of God to be reviled? Unsubmissive spouses cause the Word of God to be reviled. Men who are not self-controlled in their tongue and cut down their wife and children bring the Word into disrepute and cause it to be reviled. It's a big deal. It's important. Because how we live a ripple effect in the church. We want all of the marriages here, especially those of you who are older married couples. We want younger married couples to look at that and go, okay, that, that's what it's supposed to look like. Oh, man, I watch how he lovingly leads his wife. Oh, I, man, I, I see how he takes care of his family. I, I see how they've raised their children. I, I see how she respects and, and honors her husband and doesn't speak evil of him. Well, looks at that, but others in the church look at that too. We want all of our lives, every one of us, to have examples of godliness that others can emulate. So it comes to the young men, and he gives them one thing. Now, a lot for the younger women, but just one thing to the men, the younger men. <laughs> he says he to urge them, Titus, urge encourage strongly the young men to be what? Self-controlled. There that. There's that again. Self-controlled. What do young men need? They need to learn self-mastery. They need to learn self. Now that just that one command is 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 a pregnant command. Right? There's a lot of things. And we can be assured Paul is talking about a lot of things in just that. Self-controlled what? In how? Well, a young man needs to learn how to control his tongue. Everyone does, but young men need to learn to do that. Young men are brash and impulsive and irritating sometimes and offend people sometimes. They need to control their lusts and appetites, their sexual urges, their ambition, their avarice, their impatience. All of those have to be brought into this realm of self-mastery to exhibit the way a young man should act as a godly man in a, in a way that is consistent with sound doctrine and teaching here. All of those aspects of the young man's life are to be bought, brought under the response of, <clears throat> of, of the gospel and in a response of self-control. Okay? And this is a very important message for young men today, whether you're single or married. 
culture and society, uh, what we see today, young men want to live in extended adolescence. Young men are coddled. They're infantilized. Uh, and it's sad because then they're growing up as stunted. In fact, many of them want to put off adulthood, adulting as long as possible. Like, how far can I kick that can down the road? So young men don't pursue a woman to marry her. They don't pursue a career. You know, they rather do easy jobs. I'm going to be a barista for the next 10 years, you know, because at least I'll get some tips and make a little bit of money so I can go, you know, do whatever. No, that's not what a biblical man does, right? And, and, and this is the sad thing. We need young men to grow up spiritually, emotionally, right, in, in maturity in the areas of their life to take seriously the matters of faith in the matters of life, to stop living selfishly and to live out God's design for men. Okay? So he's like, Titus, urge the young men to be self-controlled, to gain mastery in these areas, to be the kind of godly biblical man that they're supposed to be. Now what's interesting here is Paul links his exhortations to Titus to his exhortation to young men. They're kind of blended here together, uh, which gives us in view that there's, there's, these things apply to both here, right? Titus now must encourage the younger men, how? By setting an example in everything of what godliness looks like, right? So the elder, the leader, in this case Titus, he needs to be a model of godly living, a model of good works to the young men of the church. He must set an example by his life and teaching, right? Modeling genuine faith so that these young men can look at that and grow in godliness as well he brings that also home to his teaching right his teaching must be with integrity with dignity and sound speech which cannot be condemned by those who oppose him titus in his teaching has to be sober-minded there has to be a seriousness a dignity in his teaching I don't spend a lot of time joking. I don't spend a lot of time telling stories because none of those things are transformative. It's the sound doctrine that is. It's God's word that is. Okay? And remember the contrast that, that Paul is drawing between Titus and these false teachers because that's, that's the key in this whole thing here. Okay? And what he's supposed to model. Right? Soberness, a seriousness in the manner and delivery of the teaching. A soundness, a health. His life and ministry must be exemplary. And when he does that, any basis for slander by these false teachers and the opponents, right, is removed. And, and, and there's an openness now for the gospel to go forward. Think about this in what Paul writes about the false teachers. He says that they are unfit for any good work, but Titus is to be a model of good works. False teachers were deceivers who lied and turned people away from the truth, doing it for shameful gain, but Titus in his teaching must show integrity, truthfulness, an uncorrupted message. The false teachers were empty talkers, windbags, talking nonsensical things, 
But Titus is to show dignity and sound speech which cannot be condemned. Titus's sound words and godly examples should render the false teachers speechless. It's how he silences them. Examples inside the church. Older men, older women, to the younger women, and to the younger men. And now Paul brings it to bear on another category, a particular group and a station in life, and that is to bond servants. And I don't have a whole lot of time here to unpack this. We've talked about bond servants before and the significance of slavery in the ancient Roman world in, in, in that time. Um, but anytime we read things in instructions like this to slaves, to bond servants, uh, we should not view these instructions or the absence of a call for the abolition of slavery or why doesn't Paul denounce slavery? We should not read these things and conclude that the Bible, God's word, is legitimizing slavery. Okay? This was the reality in the ancient world. And we have this concept of slavery. We think of the, the awful, horrific chattel slavery uh, that our own nation uh, experienced and walked through, and we, we read that into this text. But this was a very different system. For sure, there were slaves who were considered chattel and property, but many were like some type of indentured servitude. Some voluntarily placed themselves for, for survival uh, into the employ of others as bond servants. Some of them did that so that they could learn a trade. Some who were bond servants in the ancient world were considered part of the family, part of the household. They were treated like family members. Not all, but a lot of them were. Some of them were highly skilled. Some were professionals, doctors, and lawyers. Uh, all right, so this is a, a different um, uh, idea or concept of slavery than the one many of us understand and have, and, and have in our mind here. All right, uh, but what's Paul's main concern in addressing bond servants here? His main concern is that Christian bond servants, like the other categories, exhibit character and conduct consistent with Christian doctrine. That's his concern. His concern is also about the reputation of the gospel with outsiders, okay? Those whom those bond servants would serve. Now, these particular things apply to every Christian who's in the employ of another. If you're working for someone else, this applies to you, all right? Christians should not be passive at work. Christians should not go to work with the, the attitude, I'm going to do the bare minimum required of me and no more. That's a lousy attitude. And it's not Christ-like conduct. We should seek to be a blessing to our employer. We should seek to do that by being well-pleasing, as he instructs bond servants to be to their masters. Well-pleasing. Think about that. Your boss, your supervisor, your manager, whoever you report directly to should look at you and go, that's, that's a fantastic employee. Like, I wish everyone was like that. We should be doing our best. We should not be insubordinate. We should not be argumentative. We should be respectful to our supervisors, managers, directors, 
VPs, whoever it is you report to. We should not steal from our employer. And we do when we're not doing our best. We do when we take extended breaks and lunches and like our attitude is, so what? I deserve it. We should demonstrate good faith. Doing what we're paid to do and doing it with excellence. And what is the result of workers who live this way, whose conduct matches their creed, who preach what they practice, who profess to be Christians in their workplace and behave in the manner here that Paul is instructing Titus to address in relation to their employer? Look at this. So that in everything, they may adorn the gospel of God our Savior. I love that phrase. This applies to everyone in every facet. But this is the ripple effect of sound doctrine working its way out in the life of the believer with its implications and applications in their vocational life. Whatever it is that you do. He says they adorn the doctrine of God. They bring luster to the gospel message. They embellish the gospel with their godly life and conduct. Now, slaves, by their good conduct, make the gospel appealing to their masters. Now, that has whole other implications, which are so amazing, and we may touch on them next week here. But every Christian worker, by their good conduct, could make the gospel attractive to their unbelieving bosses and supervisors and managers. But the flip side of that is true. By their bad conduct, unchristlike conduct, make the gospel detractive. Make the gospel repulsive. Think about the picture he's drawing here. The gospel is a jewel. And much like a diamond, a jewel is, set, is put on a setting, a ring, to be displayed. That's what the Christian life does. The Christian life and the way we live it out displays the gospel. And how we live can either tarnish that gospel jewel or make it shine with incredible luster that makes it attractive and appealing and beautiful to others. By our life and conduct, if we give no evidence of salvation or, 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 or no evidence that we've been transformed by the doctrine of God our Savior, we tarnish this gospel jewel. Others look at it and go, that's a Christian? I don't want any of that. It ain't working in their life, so why am I going to even bother doing that? Right? And the flip side is true. If by our life and conduct we give evidence of salvation, give evidence of being transformed by the grace of God, then we shine with this extra luster and make the gospel shine with extra luster that people go, I want some of that. Like, that works. That's appealing. That's attractive to those who are being saved, right? We can either adorn the gospel or discredit the gospel. So I asked you, what kind of worker are you? Are you someone who works with a view of being a blessing to your employer and seek to bless them? Do you, by your life and conduct, at work, adorn the gospel or discredit it? The implications of sound doctrine have a ripple effect in a life, in a home, in the church, and in the world. 
All of us have a role and responsibility of making God real to someone else. Everyone is called to adorn the gospel of our God. Every one of us is called to make sure that we don't bring the gospel into disrepute and dishonor. The mark of maturity in a believer is their sense of responsibility for others in the church community. Resist that temptation, brothers and sisters, to privatize and individualize your faith, and it's, you know, it's me, and it has no, uh, it has no effect or impact on others. That's not true at all. It does. It does. How you receive sound doctrine, how you put it into practice in your life, or not put it into practice in your life, has ripple effects beyond you. We're all called to drink deeply of sound doctrine and teaching and wrestle with it and apply it to our lives. When we all live this way, brothers and sisters, the ripple effect will be a powerful progression of the gospel in our own lives and everywhere else. In your home, in our church, and everyone who comes into contact with you. Jesus will be magnified. The gospel jewel will shine brightly as we testify of the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation, as God's word says, to all